This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for Veterans Day, November 11th, 2021. The Presidents Are Not Kings and Plaintiff Is Not President edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon is absent today. I don't know where she is. I think she's on yeah. deadline. I think she's on deadline. I think that's what it oh, is. Oh, you mean you can, get, you can get out of this show by just being on deadline? I think... I mean, if, if Emily, who is the most like diligent, productive person, feels overwhelmed and on deadline, then you know that it's, it's an unreasonable expectation. But I actually don't know. For all I know, she's on vacation. For all I know, she's in Bora Bora. Uh, that doesn't matter. Ruth Marcus, Washington Post columnist, GabFest regular is back. Hello, Ruth. How are you? Hi, Emily Bazelon poser. Uh, oh, there's only one Emily who could be Emily. Uh, fortunately, there's also only one John who can be John, and he's here. John Dickerson of CBS Sunday Morning from New York. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Ruth. This week, the infrastructure bill passed. Is it a big enough deal? Will Biden get Build Back Better through how badly will inflation impact all of his hopes and plans and dreams? Then the roiling chaos of Trump world, new January 6th subpoenas, Hatch Act, lawbreaking, a grand jury, so much, so much stuff happening in Trump world that we, I guess, are obliged to discuss. And then... <laughs> It's the law. We're obliged to you. Don't. Why are you laughing? I just, you made it sound like there was some, like, you know, I don't know, that, that we didn't have free will over the choices of, we, of what we put on the show. It was um, really not the best pitch. Uh, it's going to be great. I can't wait to hear what we have to say about it. I have so many thoughts. Then the fascinating, disturbing trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, what it says about the state of modern America preview. It says a lot. I think it's, I am obsessed with this trial. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. So the bipartisan infrastructure framework, Biff, <laughs> your sister's preppy boyfriend, Biff, finally passed last week. President Biden is signing the bill today, I believe. Means we can move on to three new questions. First, what is in the infrastructure bill? Will it be useful for America? Second, how does its passage affect what Democrats are likely to do? on Build Back Better, the big social spending bill that that uh, progressives in particular want to push through. And finally, will the GOP root out and expel the handful of House Republicans who voted for the infrastructure bill, which was a bipartisan bill to begin with? So Ruth, start with what's in this new law. Is it a good new law? 
It's a good new law and there is a lot in it, more that's been in any infrastructure bill in many, many years. It, you can pick your number. It's either $1.2 trillion or it's $550 billion in new spending, but it does everything from chargers for the electric vehicle that I no longer have because it was too hard to find chargers when we were driving across the country, to clean water, to bridges to um, broadband. So a whole heck of a lot that a lot of people should like, and actually not only Democrats, 19 Republicans voted for BIF in the Senate, and 13 Republicans, you might note fewer, voted for BIF in the House, helping it get across the finish line, um, but they are getting a remarkable amount of grief for that. <laughs> do, you, do you think... John, is it your sense, and I know you're not an infrastructure policy expert, but is the, oh. sca- <laughs> is the scale of it right? Is the scale of BIF right? Uh, I actually, I, you're, you're quite, quite right about me not being an expert on infrastructure policy, but I, but boy, does it reward inquiry. Bridget put a wonderful um, study uh, in the research from Brookings Institution about BIF and what comes next, and you can go down... I mean, if you believe that governments are organized to try to meet urgent needs and channel expertise towards meeting those urgent needs, you can really have a festival inside of this legislation. I mean, just looking at water infrastructure and how um, that is improved and also how the money flows out into the states and the relationship between public and private, there is, I think, the largest investment from the federal level in resilience against the effects of climate change, which is kind of an amusing little sideline because you have uh, Bill Cassidy, the Republican senator from Louisiana, who is one of the authors, not just of the bill in the Senate, but also the climate provisions, heralding the passage of the bill, where you have Senator Kennedy, a fellow Republican, and Steve Scalise uh, in the House, essentially behaving as if climate change doesn't um, really exist. That's maybe going a little too far. Certainly in Scalise's case, that's true. But it just shows you one of the the tensions involved in this. But does it meet the needs? I mean, based on everything I read, uh, it does. And this these are needs that are you know something we don't hear much about, which is long term needs. In other words, this isn't like an. I mean, it's an acute issue, but this is government action. You know, for the long term, for sustained growth over a very long period of time, and it's going to take a while to get it implemented. I, I mean, I'm I'm realistic. I understand the world we live in, and I understand that a ten trillion dollar infrastructure bill was not going to be passed. That said, um, it's it's great, and and as the the data suggests, it's going to raise infrastructure spending as a percentage of GDP to its highest level since the 1970s, but. It's way short of what's needed. And when you think about it for lead abatement and pipes, that they're going to spend, I think, $15 billion on trying to root out all the lead pipes that are still afflicting. And the estimates I read suggested that that actual need, if you wanted to get rid of the lead pipes that cause all kinds of mental damage and all kinds of disease in both young people and adults, it would be $60 billion. So it's a great start, and it's $15 billion more than was going to be spent. And I'm sure there'll be huge progress made. But the amount of infrastructure improvement that this country could use is obviously way greater than even the $550 billion that's spent. And the shame of it is that the country is able to borrow at incredibly low rates right now. And, you know, 
it is it hugely grows the deficit and grows the national debt, but it's for a cause that which pays itself off over and over and over and over again. And so it's very frustrating to me that this is taken as like, well, this is kind of as big as you get, or it's not, it's as big as we're going to get. And people are unable to think about the possibility of spending even more for a change that would be even better and pay off for the country in the long term, for everybody in the country in the long term. So, but I understand the world we live in. Well, David, I, I think you, I agree with everything that you said about the scope of the needs and the size of this bill not being commensurate with the scope of the needs. But in addition to um, the art of the politically possible and the reality that we had imaginary infrastructure week for four years under Donald Trump and never managed to do it. There's just a really interesting, and this, when I say interesting, I mean interesting to John Dickerson and me, governmental administration question about the capacity of government to absorb this amount of additional spending. It's another $160 billion a year over the next stretch. And so you need to shovel out that amount of money and it reminds us that um, back in the day in 2008, when a trillion dollars also seemed like a lot of money, or 2009, we didn't have a, a lot of shovel-ready projects. And even if it t- you sort of spend the time to order the shovels and everything, it takes a lot of people and experts throughout the sort of ranks of government to effectively administer these programs. So great point. I, I would vote for more, but I am concerned even about the ability to administer this. The other point I would make is that, as you're saying, this infrastructure bill should be bigger. Are you taking away from BBB? To Ruth's point, from the presidential standpoint, we think about so that what's I mean, also, you can, like having a bipartisan bill of this size pass through politics today is itself. I mean, it, when Ruth and I started out, that was normal. That kind of thing happened. And then a president went around the country and tried to sell it like this doesn't happen a great deal. So that's another reason why just to remember what the art of the, how sh- much the art of the possible has shrunk. But Ruth puts her finger on a crucial point is when when you think about presidents. The first thing is, can they get this kind of legislation passed? But the second huge and important thing is implementation. We focus on the signings, but we rarely focus on the execution. And a huge question here, if you care about and think about whether these programs are important and happen, is whether an administration has the focus and the talent to implement everything. I mean, that's that that depends who's in the executive branch but then there's the, just the overall slowness of things. CBO did an analysis of the Obama shovel-ready stimulus package in the beginning of his presidency, and it took the Department of Transportation, in the first six months, they spent 9% of the allotted money. After 18 months, they spent only half of it. It's It takes a while for this to happen, and we're in the middle of a supply chain issue, and so that's a demand issue. There's been more demand than the system can handle, and this puts more demand in the system which means we not only have the the slowness of having this ha- happen that would exist anyway in government, but we have particular slowness because of the supply chain issues. Right. You could order the shovels. It is shovel ready. We've ordered the shovels. The shovels are going to take a year to arrive. <laughs> so. The shovels are back ordered. So the, Ruth, you brought up uh, Build Back Better, the sort of social infrastructure bill, which, no, I would love for that to be spent. I would love to, for them to spend $3 trillion on that or $7 trillion on that. And raise wages for every caregiver in the country and and have uh, universal preschool and universal daycares and universal 
ever all care elder care for sure John, where are we on that? It was those the bills were conjoined twins. There was this idea yeah. they cannot live without the other, but they passed one, and now the, the other one is is the other one just dying somewhere? Well, it may be dying because Joe Manchin is killing it. So there was an agreement in the House to decouple these two. Um, there seems now to be some disagreement of between the moderates in the House and the progressives in the House about what the nature of that agreement was. So that's one little challenge. But the big challenge is that Joe Manchin is continuing to say, as he has for a long time, uh, let's go slow. Let's not rush into this because inflation. And if you don't get Manchin and you don't get 50 votes in the Senate, it doesn't happen. So he is continuing to say that inflation numbers this week were uh, the, the increase year over year. Check me if I'm wrong, Ruth, on this year over year increase in inflation was the highest in 30 years which gives more evidence to those who would like to either kill or delay the Build Back Better legislation on inflation fears. Pelosi says there's going to be a vote next week in the House, but it's had yet another challenge from uh, Joe Manchin. And unless he gets convinced, it's not going to happen. So these were conjoined twins that you actually did not want to separate if you are a believer in both bills. Um, You did not want the operation to separate them to succeed. And it succeeded at, I mean, you wanted it to succeed in the sense that they needed to be separated in order to get Biff passed. But that operation took place at the worst possible moment, as it turned out, for progressives and for Joe Biden, which is to say that we had these really quite daunting and alarming and I think perhaps should alarm even the David free spending David Plotzes of the world inflation numbers that came out. And so while I th- I had thought that the, while this was a very, very high wire act to get Build Back Better through the Senate with Manchin and Cinema, I think that these latest inflation numbers are going to be quite jarring for them. And it, it is um, very much that the operation succeeded, but half the patient is about to fail. And now I will stop torturing that metaphor. (laughs) So Ruth, you touched on this earlier. One of the epiphenomena of the uh, Biff passage is that the 13 Republicans in the House who voted for this new law have been catching hell from their constituents and from from people all over the country. Their their phone lines are being uh, overwhelmed with angry messages, death threats, their social channels overwhelmed, and, you know, threats to primary them, threats to drum them out of the party, threats to strip them of their committee assignments. This is for a, a law, as you pointed out, had that had 19 cent Republicans supporting it. So I, th- th- this is part to me of a larger phenomenon of just making it very unpleasant to be a member of Congress. And scary. Uh, it's scary. You cannot to to vote your conscience and and not even your conscience to vote your constituents' interests to do it on something that, as John said, when we used to drive our horse and buggy to the gates of the White House to cover it, um, should be a no brainer and a nonpartisan thing. The one thing that members of both parties have always been able to agree on is spending money and getting credit for it, um, to suddenly find that to be a potentially death-defying political act is just a measure of the crazy town we're living in. Well, I, 
I think it's one of the things that's happening is that it's so we're selecting out all the people who kind of are willing who believe in politics as the art of compromise and and the the people who remain in politics are people who who revel who are unaffected by the amount of hostility and who even revel in well, the amount of hostility that they get and that's that, a terrible set of people to have in politics they don't just revel their careers depend on it that's how they raise money. That's how they raise money for themselves and also how they raise money for other members of the party and they gain fame and get on TV a lot. I mean, it is their it is their lifeblood creating this kind of conflict. And it's one of the big things that has corroded Congress more broadly. The other big force corroding Congress is the reason the stakes are so high, so high here is not just a the fact that polling consistently shows that members of both parties in the, the cores of those parties think that the opposition is not just wrong, but evil. So you've created an apocalyptic view of the other side. And so that seeps into this kind of behavior. But secondly, what's at stake here is control of the of the houses. I mean, as Frances Lee has shown in her work, that all the fights have the stakes are high because it means that Republicans are giving a win to the Democrats. And that's going to undermine their effort to say the Democrats can't do anything. Please give us control of the House and Senate again, which is the dynamic you have when the two bodies switch back and forth relentlessly. But the final point goes to yours, David, which is this is how you make legislation. There are adults in the Senate and even adults in the House who know that this is the only way you get anything done. And as Ruth said, constituent service, which is what those Republicans are doing, which is voting for things that directly affect their states and districts, is the central part of their jobs. And Republican leaders know this, and they know that's why they voted for this legislation. And yet they're letting the most uh, virulent members of their constituency burn down the system. This isn't just about one vote. It's about whether you can have compromise and make progress on something that's important. And that has long-term ramifications that go well beyond this to whether Congress can even do its job. And you would think that a leader of that institution would care about whether the institution can actually function or operate, particularly a leader who takes the long view, which leaders are supposed to do. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest every week. So much fun to do those segments. We are going to do today a GabFest Plus, a Slate Plus segment on the University of Austin, the new university that a bunch of conservatives and conservative intellectual types want to set up in Austin that will be a counterweight to the liberal-dominated ivory tower that so many of us attended. <laughs> Ruth Marcus and David Plotz. John Dickerson did not attend a liberal-dominated ivory tower university. No, and I think that's why people can sense in me a real kind of connection with uh, something really <laughs> central and elemental in um, uh, the uh, rich American tapestry. That is true. Slate Plus members, you get to hear John Dickerson say rich American tapestry six or seven times every Slate Plus segment. <laughs> Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. It's only a dollar for the first month. You get not only our bonus segments, but so much other good stuff. No ads on any Slate podcast, for example. I'm just over here sipping on my Invermectin tea. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. 
On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. I will confess that I make an effort not to pay attention to what is happening in Trump world, not merely what former President Donald Trump is up to, but also what those who would investigate or punish him are up to. Um, It seems to me like mental energy that I would better spend on other things. So I generally spend on other things. But occasionally there's so much news that arises, the poisonous bubble of news arises from the toxic slurry uh, where he lives that you have to pay attention. And so it was this week. Um, Ruth, just quickly, give us a, there's a, there's a, just a ton of Trump worldy news. What, what were the highlights for you? So for me, the highlights were, um, judge Tanya Chutkin in, um, the district court here in DC, um, telling the former president that he is not only not a king, as you said, in the name of the show, um, you're not a king and you're not even the president. And this is a dispute that's going to make its way up through the food chain of the federal courts about whose papers are they anyway um, and <laughs> and other documents. President Trump has – president's papers go to the National Archives. There is a mechanism if somebody is trying to get those papers um, for a former president to say, hey, they're covered by executive privilege. But there's also – a mechanism for the current president to say, hey, you know what? I care about executive privilege too because people could be invading mine and I think they are not covered by privilege. So here for really, um, uh, we have this absolute conflict between President Biden, the actual president, who says, I think these um, papers are not, and these documents are not covered by executive privilege, and to the extent that they are, there's an imperative public interest in getting them, and so no, former President Trump, you're wrong. The judge the legal uh, dogs agreed. barking at the door coming yeah, out I'm of the room. I'm so sorry about that. He's a bad dog, but he loves a good district court ruling. <laughs> so I am taking it as he is say he's barking not just for Judge Chutkin telling Donald Trump that uh, he uh, loses here, but also refusing to grant a stay um, while he appeals that. This is going to go up to the district court, to the appeals court in D.C., where it's apt to get a pretty conservative panel of uh, including Trump appointees. And so it's going to be fascinating to see what they do. Meanwhile, outside the courthouse, back in one of the other branches of government, the January 6th Select Committee. Have you guys gotten a subpoena yet? I haven't gotten a subpoena yet, but I think we have to be on the list um, because they are subpoenaing. Um, and, and I don't want to say I am not being, um, I'm sounding snarky here, but I'm not really being snarky. I think this is imperative. I think David Plotz is completely wrong. I think it's really important for all of us to pay attention to what happened in, on January 6th and the lead up to January 6th and to make sure that the public pressure is on so that we don't turn away from the imperative of figuring out what happened. And so they have issued subpoenas to, a, I, I've lost the total count, a, a, a ton, 
I think is the technical legal term, <laughs> of individuals um, in the Trump White House and in its environs uh, who to provide testimony and documents. And those are go- some of them are being complied with. Many of them are not being complied with. Um, that turns us to, um, I think, the third, and I'm probably missing something, but the third ring of this circus in the executive branch, which, is, which has been kind of silent. We're still waiting to hear from the Merrick Garland Justice Department about whether or not it's going to do what it should do, I believe, um, and prosecute Steve Bannon for contempt of Congress, which was passed by the House, but needs to be um, executed by the Justice Department. Yeah, I couldn't agree with Ruth more. The reason to study the attacks of January 6th in whatever form is that is about January 6th, but it's also that the habits of mind that allowed it to happen are being exploited and further perfected at this very moment in an effort to pretend that what happened on January 6th wasn't as awful as it was, which, of course, if those habits of mind become perfected, then it sets the stage for this to happen again. And what I was saying in the previous segment about leaders in Congress recognizing that threatening Republicans who voted with Democrats is the beginning embers of what is an inevitable conflagration. The same is true on January 6th, which is there were identifiable things after the election in November that represented those same kind of embers. And you didn't have to be that smart to recognize that those embers, after seeing what you had seen for four years in the Trump administration and the relationship he had with his voters, were going to lead to something awful. And turns out something awful happened. And so to not go back and say, hey, maybe we can head off this kind of thing, not just what happened on that very day and who was abetting it and who allowed it to happen and who fomented it, but also if you don't walk the cat back and figure out the contributing factors in in a variety of different ways, the contributing factors, then you just set yourself for it open for it to happen again. It's just it's like basic. And also, while I'm on this damn horse that is, uh, um, e- e- there's another point that's really striking, which is that members of the the, the um, uh, of Congress should care a little bit more about basically the fact that they were attacked by the executive branch, and that there is no kind of collective outrage at what was done to the to Congress is amazing. And again, especially for people who spent their career saying, you know, there's been too much executive overreach, and we got to get rid of this executive overreach and protect the prerogatives of Congress. Well, here you have it. Here's your chance. It's like saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kill an elephant when the elephant, I'm going to go take out that elephant. The elephant's in your living room. You've been handed a gun. Now is the time to actually behave in support of the institution that you're a member of. Why would you go kill elephants? What's, well, what's, I was the only thing that could wrong come to with mind. You? <laughs> I know. I'm just, but it's, sorry, it was the only thing that came to mind. Come I mean, on, man. <laughs> we're just going to call him Captain Spaulding from now no, on. No, no, I, I agree. I couldn't think of like, but I mean, it's for so long you have people who, I mean, particularly Republicans who've said, you know, uh, yeah, the executive I, is overreached. <laughs> I, right. Maybe I, I I'm should. With you. I'll come up with a more. Uh, uh, That's good. That's perfect. A, um, well, and 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 just joining David Plotz and the kind of I can't look at this bench on that bench over there. Apparently, are all Republican donors. All these Republican donors who abjured Republicans after January sixth, who are like, we can't give to this party. We can't give to members who who support President Trump, who, who voted to not validate the election. They're all back. They're all kind of pouring. You know, the the energy companies, the hedge funds. The tech companies, they are back and they are pouring money into the Republican Party. So they, when you think about the, the amnesia, um, 
the amnesia is, is alive and well. I guess my kind of choice not to pay too much attention to it is not so much, I mean, A, it's just for my own mental health. It just agitates me. It's more just a sense that it's a despondency that none of this will get settled. The, the January 6th investigations will be derailed when Republicans take the House back in 2022 and and they will they'll delay the investigations until 2022. And then when they take the House back, they'll just pull pull back on all of it. And I'm, you know, I'm also convinced that the Supreme Court will come down firmly on whatever side it is that will protect Donald Trump's interests on the executive privilege front. And so it's, I guess my choice is a choice to, to not emotionally invest in the idea that this is going to reveal anything or change anyone's priors, because my fear is just it won't. And, and it's a fatalism. And I guess what you guys are saying is that fate, we can't afford fatalism. Right. I mean, what's the consequence of your fatalism? The, the implications of your fatalism is January 6th happens and we shrug and we say, well, that was regrettable. And we would be very um, perturbed if this were to occur in the future. So we would really respectfully ask that you not engage in such conduct. But what is, it, what is it in your much. world? What is it that what is it that they this committee can accomplish to change minds or change the Republican Party's attitude toward it. Like it just feels it feels hopeless because this party is so deeply corrupt and deeply complicit and in the thrall, a cultish thrall of a monster. And well, I think so, that we've already we've already gotten. There is some information, but there will not be perfect information, as we learned with Don McGahn. It is possible in the current uh, environment for anybody who has managed to go into the plot's memory hole and forget Don McGahn was President Trump's White House counsel and he managed to put off Congress for years and years and years from getting his testimony when it mattered. But not everyone will testify, but some people will testify. They will provide important information for people who care and for generations down the road to understand what it is that happened um, and potentially happened to our democracy and how close we came to disaster and who was responsible for it. And if you, you know, don't ask, don't get. And so don't subpoena, don't get. Don't try, don't get. So if you want to be plots and put your head in the sand, you go, like, I, I thought, well, plots is like the, whatever, what's the bird? plots. The whole podcast is, <laughs> yeah, you're just like, let it, I'm like the straw man. Little, let it be I, resolved. I'm the elephant. I'm apparently the elephant. <laughs> let it be resolved that we shall build a high tower, and from that tower we <laughs> shall dunk upon the plots. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, David. It's been really nice being a guest on the Gab Fest. <laughs> um, can I jump in here? Because um, I, I must. The examination that Ruth talks about is important, but also we shouldn't lose sight that the the central quality of this is known, is public, and is admitted to by former President Trump. The president considers, and considered in the moment, the rioters to be heroes. He did not take action, both official action or by making a statement that would calm them down, when he was implored to do so by leaders of his party in Congress, his children, his closest advisors. And that was, the, that was what happened in the moment. And subsequent to that, there are now people in the party who are trying to forget that all of that happened. This is about maintaining standards in public about how people should behave and what is and what should outrage us because it's an attack on the system that keeps us from all being at each other's throats. And if 
Ruth put it beautifully, which is like if you treat it as an inconvenience, you know, like a like a gaffe or, a you know, an impolite word said in the parlor of polite society, if you treat it in that minimal a fashion, then you just invite it to happen again or you invite people to perfect ways of doing it again. You have to hang a lamp on this, even if you discover nothing new, you have to hang a lamp on it so that people say, you know, it turns out probably shouldn't have violence when things don't turn out the way you'd like them to be. Let's turn to the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, he was a 17-year-old who brought an AR-15 style rifle to the protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He came from his home in Illinois to a place he did not live, Kenosha, Wisconsin, after there were protests following the shooting of a black man who was thought at the time to have been unarmed. And he... Uh, Rittenhouse went, he believed, to defend businesses that he thought were threatened by demonstrators and to provide medical care he was untrained to provide. Uh, He ended up in disputes and conflicts with some of the protesters and killed two people and wounded another and then endangered various other people by shooting near them. He is now on trial for murder. He testified in that trial on Wednesday and was apparently teared up and was very emotional about what he perceived to be his right to defend himself from a threat. He's making a really interesting claim of self-defense. And, you know, whether he's convicted or acquitted is going to be a really fascinating question. Ruth, this is just an amazing case because it's pretty clear to me, at least, he's going to be acquitted, at least of the most serious charges that he faces. He'll make a claim of self-defense and that there is under this very broad law that exists in Wisconsin and other places, your entitlement to self-defense is is vast. But it gets to this other issue, which is like, are you really entitled to self-defense if you bring an incredibly deadly weapon to a place where there is chaos and act like a act like a vigilante? Um, and is that is that should you immediately forfeit your right to make a claim of self-defense if you do that? But anyway, I'm just wondering. Talk about his claim of self-defense, and is it a valid claim? I think you're not wandering at all. I I think you've put your finger on the fundamental tension here, which is between the rights of Kyle Rittenhouse as individual criminal defendant and our need as a society to figure out the appropriate way to deal with this outburst that we've had of vigilantism. So... I hold no brief for Kyle Rittenhouse. The notion that he was taken up by the right from President Trump on down as a avatar of white goodness and toughness on crime and he is a hero is repugnant. It's repulsive. It is wrong. He's a 17-year-old who had no actually legal right to have a gun, who put himself into uh, a situation that he knew was violent, carrying this super lethal weapon and should not have had it, should not have been using it, should not have been in that position. However, Kyle Rittenhouse as individual criminal defendant is entitled to a lot of things that we want individual criminal defendants to be entitled to, to the presumption of innocence, to the requirement that the jury unanimously find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, um, and to a claim that whatever happened 
prior to that moment um, of shooting. And when I say moment of shooting, I mean moments of shooting because he shot three people, killing two of them. What matters in his self-defense claim is whether he was acting reasonably in fear at at that time. And there, I think the prosecution has a very, very difficult case, may have overcharged its case. And you say it looks like he's going to be acquitted of the most serious charges. I think that's clear with the proviso that it may not even get to that because the prosecutors may have fumbled yesterday and uh, in some of the evidence that they tried to kind of sneak in about Kyle Rittenhouse. He used Kyle Rittenhouse's silence with police beforehand um, as a way of suggesting that he was somehow, um, that in a way that, that suggested that was somehow incriminating for him. And Kyle Rittenhouse has a Fifth Amendment right not to answer questions. He raised that Fifth Amendment right at trial, but it is an absolute no-no for prosecutors to suggest that invoking your Fifth Amendment right or exercising your Fifth Amendment right is illustrative of guilt. And there's that's where the prosecutor crossed the line. The judge, who we should also talk about, could actually not just dismiss the case, but dismiss the case with prejudice, which would mean that it couldn't be he couldn't be tried again. Ruth, you're you're a lawyer. Like the the thing that's so interesting to me here is just that he is entitled to a defense, this self defense defense, and the self defense defense appears not to. It doesn't appear to be relevant that he himself has brought this gun, which is so deadly. And then, in fact, one element of his defense appears to be that he felt in fear, uh, in part because he thought someone might take his gun from him <laughs> and shoot him with it. And so that he brings he brings the thing which causes the episode to be entirely heightened, and then his justifiable defense is that that someone might use it against him, right. and it's just it's so it's like a it's so twisty. It's self exculpating. In other, you just by carrying a gun, you can always claim that you were worried it might be taken away from you, which allows wanton use of it. Um, the other thing that is we should just throw in there in terms of the legal part of this is that. Um, when when judging whether he had a reasonable fear of his uh, of, of for his life, which then you know the tests are that the fear was reasonable and that the force was all that w- was the only necessary means. A belief can be reasonable even though it's mistaken, which feels like if you're trying to convince a jury to unanimously charge that he did this willfully and not you know at, at least a little bit in self defense. That idea that a belief can be reasonable even though it's mistaken seems like something that a juror could kind of hold on to and not convict him. The The other thing that that is interesting to me about this is the question of provocation, judging that, whether, because you don't get to say it was self-defense if you provoked it. And then the other is, and it's kind of murky in the law, and the other is retreat. In other words, did you have a an opportunity to retreat and therefore deadly force wasn't the wasn't the only option. And then finally, on this question of becoming a hero um, to President Trump, including some reporting that that there was official talking points to the um, uh, in, within the Trump administration to make Rittenhouse uh, seem like a sympathetic character. Remember also that another narrative from the right is that a good guy with a gun 
stops a bad guy with a gun. One of the people shot by Rittenhouse was a paramedic who says, and it appears from footage that this is the case, that he ran to the shooting because he thought it was a he thought it was a mass casualty event by a shooter. He had a handgun. Um, his concealed carry permit appeared to have been expired. But nevertheless, in another version of this, you could have imagined he was the good guy with the gun. What what is so often portrayed as a reason to allow um, you know gun ownership is that a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun. But here you see the two narratives uh, crashing against each other. I want to connect what's happened with Kyle Rittenhouse to what we hear happening in school boards across the country, where you have parents who are extremely upset about what they perceive to be affronts to their children, whether it's mask mandates or vaccine mandates or curricular uh, mandates of various sorts, are taking uh, control of school board meetings with aggressive tactics, often threatening school board members, veiled threats of school board members. And you know, one one school of thought says this is just, you know, this is the First Amendment. This is public expressing its right. And these are parents speaking up. And I, you know, a part of me totally believes that. But I think that what's happened with Kyle Rittenhouse, what's happened with the school board, it has to do with, the, with expectations about public behavior have kind of changed in this country in a way. And we haven't really caught up to it. You can behave in ways that are novel and antisocial and aggressive and they are no longer punished by public opprobrium. If you are an asshole, there are enough people who will say, go ahead, be an asshole. I support you being an asshole. Even if you're an asshole in your kind of in your narrow community, that the restraint disappears and shame disappears. And you kind of claim that you can be an asshole because you're acting for the higher good of your children or you're acting to protect the good businesses of Kenosha or whatever it is. But you're being an asshole. And we have lost the, the collective, because we've become so tribalized, the tribal rises to defend the asshole on their side. And we've lost the ability to kind of make these behaviors unacceptable. They should be unacceptable behaviors, what Kyle Rittenhouse does, what the parents are doing. It's just not, a polite, a well-functioning, ordered society does not behave this way. Which is why we need to um, connect it up to January 6th. And look at that, because to me, that's the real connection. That's where the civility disintegrated and the vigilantism started. Or not started, but erupted into public view. How do we get beyond it then? Like, how do we, how do we pass through it? You have to maintain standards in the face of pressure not to. And you have to say, this is wrong. And my narrow, the narrow interests of my team are not more important than universal standards. I mean, it was a really bad idea to change out the source code that said we should live our lives by caring about caring for our neighbor with source code that said we should elevate the the celebrity of people who act only in their own self-interest. But that's happened across politics and across culture. Um, And the reason it's so hard is even if there is an instance, let's let's separate it from... Rittenhouse's case, even if there's an instance in which there is a rebuke and someone and the system or a judge or otherwise stands up and says, no, these are standards and you can't shilly shally your way around them just because your team has come up with a a clever rationalization for what you've done. 
the people who most need to hear that for the standards to come back into place are the ones who will just come up with a with an after the fact rationalization for why that judge or that ruling or whatever was in error or is, you know, fixed or is somehow a result of the deep state. Well, and and I think that we need to focus on carving out space on both sides for really passionate debate. The unhappy parents who come to school boards and say, I can't believe you are foisting beloved on my beloved child, need to have space to express those views. But that can't include people attacking school board members, going to their houses, berating them in their houses. People who protest the killing of Jacob Blake uh, in Kenosha have to be able to do that protest, but but they have a responsibility. We all have a responsibility to do it in a way that is not um, engaged in violence and that doesn't um, invite or prompt, and this doesn't uh, justify any of Kyle Rittenhouse's behavior, that doesn't kind of invite vigilantism. So we just have this vicious, vicious cycle right now of anger and violence and berating and bullying that we have to figure out a way to break. But we have to figure out a way to break it really without squelching speech on both sides. We can squelch speech a little bit. (laughs) It would be okay. (laughs) Just a little bit would be fine. Like, uh, you know, I don't think uh, threats are speech. I don't think looting is speech. I don't think carrying an AR-15 style rifle is speech. That's just me. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Um, Ruth, this has been a pretty dark, dark uh, gab fest, but I am counting on you to bring <laughs> some a joyful, bubbly, a bubbly Prosecco, a delightful hot toddy of some sort of a cocktail chatter to us. Well, I don't know if this is joyful, but it's going to be different. I've been really thinking a lot about the lawsuit that was filed in California by a couple whose embryo was switched by a terrible accident before it was implanted so that a woman gave birth to a child that she believed was her child but was not her child. And she and her husband were like, huh, this one looks a little different. But like parents, you know, every parent looks at their child and says, this is the most beautiful child in the world and I love him or her to death. And so this is our child. But a few months later discovered that from DNA tests that this was not actually their biological child after all, and there had been an embryo that was switched with another couple. So the couple swapped and like, oopsies, now there's a question about who's liable and how much liability there is. But it made me start thinking about the meaning of I've carried two children to term. I Would I feel have a different connection with them or love them any less if somebody else had been the their carrier I don't think so would I feel you know what is the the loss that you have from this because I think we all understand it to be a terrible loss but at the same time we simultaneously understand and we know many many people 
who fiercely love non-biological children as fiercely as they as others love their biological children. So it's just a really interesting, and I think, you know, when the dinner party conversation lags, which it never does at my house, um, you could just get into a really interesting chat about the meaning of parenthood. There were two points I wanted to point to in that story. One is it that the, the family that's suing actually didn't, they weren't comfortable with it. The father was very uncomfortable. The father felt there was something wrong, which was interesting. And he pushed, I believe, for a DNA test. So it wasn't. Well, the- it was a terrible, but but also experienced. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but he also experienced it as a terrible loss because they had an older child, an older child who had bonded with this child who I can't remember whether it was a boy or a girl, but you know who the older child had understood this to be their sibling, and all of a sudden their sibling two months in is like, oh, never mind, we're going to return that puppy. It yeah. it's horrible. It's the other. The other piece, just from a purely tactical legal question I, question I had was, the families just traded babies. What, does a court have to approve it? Did it? Like, is there some legal judgment that says this is your child, that's their child? Oh, yeah. they, they need to go through um, a sort of relinquishment of parenthood and adoption type procedure. They you did or they should have? Then they did. Oh, they did. Okay. Yeah. I was going was to say at least you'd think they'd at least have to get something notarized. <laughs> it's so hard to get stuff notarized these days. I, can't yeah. they just do it without notarization? They come to your house now, actually. Um, there's, a, there's a business around the corner from my apartment, which is it is in a totally other line of business, but the only thing I've ever seen anyone use it for is the guy who runs it is also a notary. <laughs> so people are desperately getting stuff notarized at four bucks a pop or whatever it is. John, what's your chatter? My chatter is about the Pew Typology uh, project and report, which came out this week, an, an analysis of about 10,000 uh, Americans. And it shows that while we talk about the parties as Republican-Democrat, there are really nine different gradations of political belief and positions that people hold. So it gives you lots of analysis into what are the forces driving these parties and why it's, of course, totally obvious that it wasn't going to be um, a quick trip to the altar for um, the Build Back Better legislation or why, you know, there is the fighting in addition to the fact that legislation making is a contentious process, if anything's at stake. Of course, there was going to be infighting in the Democratic Party if you look at the way the party voters hold the various positions they hold, but it also shows you the same kinds of issues in the Republican Party. But it, but another thing that it tells you that interests me is on issues of race, for example, you have 75% of the Republican-leaning groups basically say nothing more needs to be done to ameliorate inequities in American life for black people, if they ever existed at all for that group. The Democratic groups believe the exact opposite. 75% of them believe some or a lot needs to be done to fix these issues. And it just reminds us that when you have a verdict, as you'll have in the Rittenhouse case, which, by the way, if you could combine the only thing incendiary thing that isn't a part of, of that issue is is abortion. I mean, you've got guns, race, um, politics. Um behind the the ruling will be America's existing attitudes about 
whether white Americans have advantages over black Americans. And when you look at this topology, it shows you how those beliefs thread throughout the parties and throughout the different uh, political coalitions. So it's quite interesting. It also has with it one of those quizzes that we like that allow you to figure out where you would land on the map based on your values rather than, uh, you know, what jersey a person's wearing. None of us pointed out, actually, when we were talking about Rittenhouse, like the obvious point, which is that if Rittenhouse were black, this whole conversation, I mean, the idea that he would be getting this break is ludicrous. There's just no chance or very little chance that the same self-defense argument would be taken as seriously as it's being taken by people now. Right. Uh, the benefit of the doubt goes to a white defendant in a way it wouldn't a black defendant, which was arguably what was part of the protests in the first place. Uh, I have a couple of chatters. One, first, a uh, sort of self-interested one. GAFAS listeners may remember, I used to offer tours of Fort DeRussi, this secret Civil War fort hidden deep here in Washington, D.C.'s Rock Creek Park. It's an amazing place. It has an incredible history and it's just a really fun place to visit. And I like I'm obsessed with its history and there are great stories around it. And I am reviving those tours. I'll be doing them in the fall and winter on weekends. And it's offered through Airbnb. If you look for exploring a secret fort on Airbnb or just email me davidplotz at gmail.com or tweet at me and I will send you a link. But I'd love to see you um, on Saturdays and Sundays this fall. Uh, it's just an hour. It's great. It's really fun. Beautiful place. My other chatter is a profile in the Atlantic that's taken from John Carl's new book. It's a profile of Johnny McEntee, who is a Trump official I'd never heard of, who is a he's a former college, mediocre college football quarterback, very tall and handsome. So apparently that's why Trump liked him, who at the ripe old age of 29 ended up in charge of White House personnel. And he was the loyalty enforcer across the administration. And and in the theory that the absolute worst and most competent, incompetent and venal people ended up in this imperial court, he certainly appears to be such a person. And it's an incredible story about what he did in the last days of the Trump administration, notably trying to get one of the things that was most vivid is trying to push out uh, Defense Secretary Mark Esper, ultimately pushing him out for barring the display of the Confederate flag, opposing the president's direction to use American forces to put down riots, and actively pushing for diversity and inclusion. So this guy, McEntee, is a real piece of work. And I'm sure if Trump is elected president again, he'll probably be like Secretary of State, <laughs> knowing the situation we're in now. Listeners, you sent us so many good chatters this week. This was maybe the best week of listener chatter we've ever had. It was almost impossible. I spent an hour in the listener chatter rabbit hole this week. So thank you. Please keep them coming to at Slate Gabfest. Uh, and the one they couldn't turn, couldn't turn down this one from Soar Somerville. Hi Gabfest. This is Soar Somerville in Vancouver, BC. And my chatter today is about Boji, the dog who seems to commute in Istanbul, travels about 30 kilometers a day on ferries, on trams and on the subway. He channels John as best we can tell because his favorite is the Taksim 
Square uh, historic tram. He's a good New Yorker because he doesn't seem to pay for his rides, goes right to the turnstiles without ever paying, and uh, uh, needs a little bit of work on etiquette because he often is lying across multiple seats uh, rather than making sure there's room for the other passengers. But uh, all in all, extremely well-behaved, lets people get off first, uh, and uh, certainly a, a better traveler than a lot of people on the buses I ride on. Do you guys see the picture of this dog? It is The pictures are the cutest thing you will ever see in your entire life it's just beautiful dog riding the subway i just want to say pet chatter is the best chatter a hundred percent a hundred percent that is our show for today the gap fest is produced by jocelyn frank our researcher is bridget dunlap gabriel roth is editorial director of slate audio june thomas managing producer and alicia montgomery executive producer of slate podcast please follow us on twitter at at slate Gabfest. tweet chatter to us there for john dickerson and ruth marcus the ever delightful ruth marcus even though she handed me my head on a platter but then again emily does that too most of the time i'm david plotz thanks for listening we'll talk to you next week hello slate plus how are you also welcome to our new slate plus listeners we have had a nice surge in new Slate Plus memberships and upsurge and upwelling of applications to the University of Slate Plus. We appreciate you joining. I hope you enjoy the segment. Ruth, are you uh, going to apply at University of Austin? Are you going to teach at University of Austin? <laughs> they, they haven't asked yet. And I think that would be an interesting question. I think the University of Austin or UATX um, is an interesting idea. And we should probably back up and explain a little what it is. Yeah, go ahead. It's going to start as um, a course, I think, this summer, and it's going to start at the graduate level and then potentially trickle down to uh, undergraduate without um, degree-granting opportunities for now. But the basic um, underlying impetus seems to be a belief that there are not safe spaces, as it were, for speech on college campuses across the country, that there are some topics that are too difficult, too touchy, too incendiary, too dangerous for professors, really, um, to raise with their students, and that there should be a mechanism and a venue. And they want this, interestingly, to be a physical venue, not just a virtual venue, where people who are willing to be challenged and interested in being challenged can come together. I think the the risk here is that you sort of attract the people who simply want to provoke and not the people who want to have discussions. But I have to say, and you guys may disagree with me, that while I do not agree with um, one of the founders of this enterprise, that um, political correctness and um, speech suppression on college campuses is destroying America or the worst problem that's facing America. It is by far not the worst problem that's facing America. I think it is a problem. And I think there are things that people on college campuses and elsewhere in workplaces do feel nervous about saying these days and conversations that should be had that aren't being had, that can be had in a polite and respectful way. And so I'm going to be interested to see what they do. And if they did call me up and ask me to teach, I might say yes. I find myself in agreement once again uh, with the gentlelady from... Bethesda. Bethesda? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or New Jersey. Um, (laughs) Uh, I mean, 
there's been a lot of online dunking, which is, of course, what that, that's kind of uh, repetitive. But, um, you know, and the claim is that Barry Weiss and others who've been promoting this are, um, you know, warriors against efforts to suppress free speech, but then have made a career out of suppressing free speech. Well, that's fine. Have a place where and being physically proximate and in person is crucial because we behave better as in, in each other's company than we do through social media. So that almost is. But if, if there is a project involved in trying to improve the hygiene of public discourse and debate, then that's wonderful, including whether the people who created this forum for doing so are total hypocrites and don't practice what they preach. That's great. It'd be a wonderful place to discuss this. And in fact, a perfect space in which to discuss that. And if you want to sharpen your skills for, for the kind of debate I would hope would take place in here, the Constitution of Knowledge uh, by Jonathan Rausch is a great book about what is at stake, about what we mean when we say um, uh, having open-minded debate um, and what the kind of uh, rules of evidence are for that kind of thing. Um, the Heterodox Academy is also uh, involved in this, which is a group of 5,000 professors and educators who believe that this is a problem in our culture, because of course it totally is, whether this is the right venue or not to the extent that we're all talking about it um, and see a need for it, that seems great. So more power to them. Yeah, I was really baffled by the amount of rageful heat this generated. I know, of course, it's Barry Weiss, it's you know Larry Summers, it's, it's Caitlin Flanagan, it's various people who are unfashionable, people who have been caught on the unfashionable side of certain debates and, you know, no doubt are hypocrites and and uh, wrongheaded in all sorts of ways. But the amount of rage it generated seems totally disproportionate. Yes, it is true that the intellectual right, insofar as the intellectual right has higher education uh, at Liberty or Hillsdale, it too squeezes and limits debate even more than the intellectual left does. And it's true that the people who are starting UATX are not giving up their cushy positions at these high pain elite institutions that they're abhorring right now. Um, yeah, that, that is also true. But what's the problem? What, what, what is the... <laughs> that was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 